and we'll see how it goes. Okay. So our gospel passage today comes from Luke 4, verses 21 through 30. Hear the word of God for the people of God. Then Jesus began to say to all those who are listening, today this scripture that I've just read for you has been fulfilled in your hearing. All those who are listening to him spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that had just come from Jesus' mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless, you are going to quote the proverb, doctor, heal yourself, do here in your hometown all the things we've heard you doing at Capernaum and elsewhere. And Jesus said to them, let me tell you something. A prophet is never welcomed in their hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and there was severe famine all over the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them except for the widow at Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. When they heard all this, all the people in the synagogues were filled with rage. They got up, they drove Jesus out of town, and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through in the midst of them and went on his way. This is a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we are going to be talking about a choice that we all are called to make as disciples of Jesus, to tell the hard truth. But before we do that today, I have something that I want to show you. I, have a, I want to show you, we'll see if we can do it, a clip of how telling the truth sometimes goes. For those of you who are over the age of 23 or under the age of 75, you probably know this show. It's called Friends. And in this particular episode, Rachel, one of the characters, is a notoriously bad cook, and she tries to make a dessert called Ladyfingers, but she gets half of the recipe mixed up with the recipe for shepherd's pie. And she has to serve it to all of her friends after dinner. And here's what happened. And now we're going to play this clip, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to stop this, and we're going to try another story. So we'll see how it goes. And uh, if anyone needs help pretending to like it, I learned some things in acting class. Try uh, rubbing your stomach. <laughs> or uh, oh, saying, hmm. And, uh, oh, oh, smiling. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to pay for those acting classes anymore. Rachel, there you are. Come on, let's serve that dessert already. Joey, you're going to have to stop rushing me. You know what? You don't get any dessert. Really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I would never do that to you. Okay, everybody, it's trifle time. So now, Rach, this is a traditional English trifle, isn't it? It sure is. Wow. So then did you make it with beef or eggplant? Beef. I can't have any. You know, I don't eat beef. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, Monica, I want you to have the first taste. Monica really? is a chef. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, you only got whipped cream in there. You got to take a bite with all the layers. Okay. 
You want me to drop the pee? <laughs> well? so good that I feel really selfish about being the only one who's eating it. I think we should have everyone taste how good it is. <laughs> Especially Ross. <laughs> yeah, this is so good that I'm gonna go enjoy it on the balcony. <laughs> so that I can enjoy the view whilst I enjoy my dessert. My friend Mary and tell her how good this is from Monica's room. I'll help you dial. I'm gonna go into the bathroom so I can look at it in the mirror as I eat it. <laughs> okay, now what was that all about? Is it does it not taste good? Let me try it. No, 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 no. All gone. Maybe Chandler has some left. It tastes like feet. I like it. Are you kidding? What's not to like? Custard? Good. Jam? Good. Meat? Good. So a bird just grabbed it and then... Tried to fly away with it and, and then just dropped it on the street? Yes, but if it's any consolation before the bird dropped it, he seemed to enjoy it. <clears throat> the truth can be a hard thing to tell, can't it? In this case, telling the truth was a hard thing because they didn't want to hurt their friend's feelings with it. And we asked some folks here this week to tell us about what telling the hard truth means for them. And we got a few pretty thoughtful, but also very different responses. In our constant contact, if you read it for this week, one of our college students spoke about how sometimes telling the hard truth for her has had to do with wrestling with her identity. Finding the courage to accept and name who it is we really are. The good, maybe the bad, the things about us that other people might not want to accept or be able to understand. And there are certainly elements of this type of truth-telling in our lectionary texts for today. We didn't read the Old Testament text, but in it, Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's called by God to be a prophet to a nation, and he wrestles with the hard truth of feeling totally inadequate and unprepared for the task. In Luke, Jesus has to reveal who he really is to his closest neighbors and relatives, and he faces the harsh reality of rejection. We also heard from one of our youth this week, who in describing what the hard truth meant for him, he made me think of another type of hard truth telling. Let's play the video if we can.
want to tell the truth, but it's not always what other people want to hear. So David said that the hard truth is sometimes having to say the things that other people don't always want to hear. I thought about how speaking the truth, it's not always popular. And we see this in our culture all around us right now, and the people who stand up for the things they believe in, though they know that thousands of people will probably disagree. The prophetic voices who speak out against evil and injustice and corrupt power and what feels just plain wrong. And there are certainly examples of hard truth-telling like this in our texts, too. Jesus and Paul and Jeremiah, they were all prophetic voices. They were all confronting the hard realities of the communities that they were in. They were telling them hard truths about who they were and what they were doing wrong and who they were leaving out and treating poorly in their midst. But there is another type of hard truth-telling in these texts. It may be one of the hardest of all, but I think it's also one of the hardest for most of us to see, because it's a truth that illuminates something hard about ourselves. How easy it is to let the power of feeling like we are the ones who have the truth go to our heads. Jesus is standing in the temple in his hometown with people that he knows, and he begins to teach them. And when they encounter Jesus and the truth of who he is, these people are amazed. They're amazed at what he's capable of. They're amazed that someone as wise and as powerful as Jesus could come out of their small Israelite community, and their eyes, they grow wide. They grow wide as they begin to think about all the things that Jesus could do do for them. All the miracles that he did in other places that he was going to bring to them, all the fame that he might bring to their poor rural village, all the work he could help them accomplish. And of course he would, right? I mean, he was one of them, after all. They were the people who clothed him and fed him and raised him. They were essentially his flesh and blood as fellow Israelites. They were basically the closest people to Jesus. So they weren't going to say that they earned it, but they kind of deserve it, right? Maybe more than anyone else, the power and the advantage and the truth that Jesus has to offer. And in this passage, Jesus anticipates them asking this. But instead of giving it to them, he kind of provokes them. He challenges them. He tells them two stories of two prophets in their history about how God called each of the prophets to share a word of truth and salvation, but instead of bringing it to all the people that they expected and wanted it to go to, God shared it with all the wrong people instead. As Jesus told this story to them, he said, the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was severe famine over all the land, but Elijah was sent to none of them, except for a widow in Zarephath and Sidon. And there were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, except for Naaman the Syrian. See, back in Elijah and Elisha's day, Sidon was just the sort of military power, foreign military power, that the Israelites loved to despise. 
They had a history of turmoil and conflict and failed military conquests with Sidon. And Naaman the Syrian was not only a foreigner, but also a commander of an enemy army. God didn't send the prophets to save those they expected or who by their standards deserved it. God sent them to the very last people they wanted, to their enemies, to those who had a history of fighting for their harm instead of their good. And so it's really no wonder that all those who heard Jesus that day wanted to throw him off a cliff after hearing this hard truth. They wanted the truth about Jesus and their relationship to him and their friendship with him to give them the advantage, to help them get seen and win, to bolster their own ideas and ideologies about who is right and who should be on top. They wanted the protection. They wanted to be the recipients and proprietors and distributors of God's good justice and the truth that Jesus stood for. But Jesus says no. Jesus says, you know, I actually didn't come here to make friends with some of you. I came here to tell the truth. And that truth is one that you don't get a monopoly on. See, because I see all the people that you don't see, that you don't want to see. I'm not only here for you. I'm not only here for all the ones who think they're closest to me or who think they've got me all figured out. Maybe the hardest truth about the salvation I came to share and actually that I'm calling you to share is that it really is good news of abundant grace and radical love for everyone even the people you disagree with and hate. How often do we let the power of thinking that we are the gatekeepers of truth or what's right go to our heads? Do we ever let it alienate or exclude or take advantage of others? Do we ever let it destroy grace and forgiveness, and radical love. Standing for the truth, it can certainly be a very hard thing to do, and it is important. Don't get me wrong. Truth-telling can be a good thing, even when it's hard. It has the power to change hearts and minds. It has the power to liberate, to offer freedom, to foster better understanding between people of difference. It has the power to challenge and convict and inspire and change. But in our current context, where people are becoming less shy or restricted in sharing what they believe to be true, and where the temptation to leverage it for their own personal gain is perhaps higher than it's ever been, maybe the challenge for us in these texts today is the hard truth of radical love that we might just need to convict and guide us in our own truth-telling. Haven't we seen instances where standing for the truth doesn't seem like radical love at all? It doesn't inspire hope. 
It doesn't do good. It doesn't create productive change. But very simply, it vies for power and control and popularity. Aren't there instances where the intention of our truth-telling, especially in our current political and social environments, seem less about setting folks free? Seem less about sharing the radical message of Jesus that accepts everyone and excludes no one, and instead it looks a lot more like self-aggrandizement and arrogance and resentment and destruction? Have we ever lorded what we believe to be true over others as a way to control them or silence them or villainize them for our own gain? Do we think that our knowledge or our education or our talents or our resources or our opinions and our way of life or even our godliness gives us the high ground and the justification to judge and hate others? Truth-telling is powerful, but power is a funny and fickle thing that we all have seen go to people's heads and get used for ill instead of for good. And so we aren't exempt from that. We shouldn't be surprised that in the midst of all our aims at telling the hard truth, the gospel of Jesus reminds us that perhaps the hardest and most convicting truth is that each and every one of us are called to stand for a love that we know not that much about. We're not very good at. We just celebrated a, what feels like a high holy day in our culture that celebrates love, Valentine's Day. And I think that Valentine's Day sometimes gives us a blurred image or picture of what real love is supposed to look like. But thank God we have a passage in 1 Corinthians that we read for this morning that tells us exactly what love is supposed to look like in the community Christ is calling us to. Love is patient. It is kind. It is not envious or boastful or arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or rude or resentful. It rejoices in truth. It bears all things, it believes in all things, it hopes in all things, endures all things. And it never ends. Father Richard Rohr says it like this. This is my only definition of a true Christian. A mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone. That is a definition that will never fail you, It will always demand more of you, and it will give you no reasons to fight or exclude or reject anyone. The point of the Christian life is not to distinguish oneself from the ungodly, but to stand in radical solidarity with everyone and everything else. This is the intended effect of the incarnation symbolized by the cross, God's radical and greatest act of solidarity instead of judgment.
standing in radical love and solidarity with everyone and everything else doesn't mean never telling the hard truths or holding people and systems accountable, but it does mean that our intention for truth-telling needs to be something other than our own power and control and thriving. It needs to work for the other, and they're thriving for the other and never against it. I wonder how the world would be. What our pursuits toward truth and justice would look like. What a powerful force of transformation the church could become if we made this our aim. Here at our church, every time we gather at the communion table, we say that all are welcome to receive the gifts and graces of God. Do we really believe that? And if so, how does it shape our lives that we live together when we leave the table? Do we let it guide our conversations with each other? Does it shape our mission? And who we seek to serve? Does it inspire and give us the courage to create ministries that intentionally reach out beyond the walls of this church to the people who aren't here? What a powerful force the church could be if we made love of the other our aim and our intent. What a powerful force indeed. Let us pray together.